Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're very welcome to another episode of the Scaling Your Business podcast. For this episode, I'm joined by Ronan Harper, the CEO of Pivotal. Ronan, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks, Ryan. Nice to be here. Delighted to have you. Typical fashion of the show is we spend the first couple of minutes getting to know the guest, and then we move on to challenge pivotal moments. So no different with you. If I've done my research correctly, you grew up in Castleberg in Tyrone. That is correct. Uh, I'm a Tyrone man. They, can, they always say you can take a man out of Tyrone, but you'll never take Tyrone out of the man, I guess. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, grew up in a small sort of a very small farm in the country outside Castle Eric in Tyrone. Um, what was it like growing up there? Oh, do you know, if I'm honest, it was, it was different in that, you know, it, it's, it's for some of your listeners, maybe now that are maybe the, what I would call the new year age individuals, like, you know, back in them days, as you all appreciate, you know, we didn't even have a phone in the house. I remember mm. when our first phone actually came into the house, you know, we, uh, there was 10 in our house growing up, so we lived with my my mum and dad. There were six of us in the family, but, you know, like a lot of families back then, we lived with our grandparents as well in a very small house, sort of three in the bed and the little one's head type thing. Um, and, you know, back in the mid-80s, like many of us around it, we renovated the house, and, you know, even the renovated house was probably too small. Like, I often reminisce to some of the guys that growing up as a kid, you know, I slept in the kitchen on a bed to tea you know, whilst there were three in the bed. And that was even in the renovated house. But, you know, the age I am now, looking back, uh, I wish I had that again because it was a very simple life. You know, I'm married now with kids. I've got the usual challenges that a lot of your listeners will have as well around, you know, screen time and iPads and, you know, Nintendo Switches and Xboxes. And, you know, we didn't have any of that. We had a football and a bike. And I suppose growing up for me, uh, it was on a small farm. We had a tractor and a trailer and, you know, we did a bit of farm work around and I was just really into that. And I, you know, I have fond memories of sitting on the mudguard of my dad's tractor all day, plowing a field or out in the hay or out working in the bog, taking home the turf. And we did that for the community as well. So that was, that was life growing up back then, you know, when I was at the younger age going through. And then I suppose as I got into my teenage years, you know, things were difficult. I think there was a stat one stage, Ray, where Castle Derrick was the most bombed town in Northern Ireland for wow. per capita. Yeah, I think, that, you know, that I think. And I remember the times when, you know, you know, there was bombs going off in the town, you know, climbing up on top of a roof up in the country to see if you could see anything. So we lived in that sort of space as well, which happily now that just isn't there anymore. And we mm. lived, you know, I'm happy enough to say it, but there are times when you went to bed as a kid where you, you had a little bit of fear wondering, is there going to be a knock on the window or a knock on the door? Because this is what you were faced with every day with the troubles that were in Northern Ireland up, up until, you know, the Good Friday Agreement. So, you know, on a balance, though, uh, I love I love my childhood. I, I, I try and instill some of that to my kids now uh, at the same time. So uh, it was it, it was great. A simple, fun life, but it sounds like things. Yeah, it was. And like, you know, we, we had football and... Uh, you were lucky maybe for Santa to bring you a bike and you're on the bike every day. That was just it. 
mm. and out, out in the fields and no screens, no TVs, no phones, no distractions. And summer holidays went on forever. There's someone I know who's based in Dubai, out in the Middle East, and they're raising kids. And he lived a similar life to you. And he thinks his kids have got it too easy. So he's moving them back home so that they can not have it too easy and not grow up soft. Yeah. Um, usually people can point to a number of key figures who've influenced them or had an impact on the person they've turned out to be today. Yeah. A parent, a colleague, an acquaintance, a teacher, anyone come to mind for you? Oh, gee, I would have a list, right? Uh, you know, but I suppose in my early days, um, I suppose when I look at my family now, and, and I suppose a lot of your guests will say family, and I'm, and I'm no different. Like my mum and dad were big influencers for us and like growing up we didn't have a lot but we were happy and i remember even in the earlier days my mom's mentality was if you've got your health and you're happy we've got everything and and she, and she still thinks like that so i think you know some of the early influencers for me were my mom and dad uh my dad is probably a reserved quiet hard-working guy my mom even to this day is so level-headed and you know it doesn't matter uh how big a drama a situation would be like one of the things she used to always tell me, and I still live by today in personal life and in business, is what's for you won't pass you. Mm. You know, and I love that saying. I and I I repeat it sort of most days of my life, if 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 not every day of my life, in any any opportunity that I have. I suppose growing up as well, a big influencer in my life in my early days would have been actually my grandfather. So as I said earlier, my my granny and granddad on my father's side lived with us in our mm. house. So uh, I suppose uh, growing up as a young guy, uh, I think the first time I drove a tractor was when I was four. I just love tractors. And so when my older brothers, because I was the youngest of six, sort of weren't around as much, my grandfather still had things to do around the farm. So he would have, you know, come in to me on a Saturday when I was watching Laurel and Hardy or something like that, knocking on the door saying, Mom, we have a bit of fencing to put up in the field or something like that. So I spent a lot of time with my grandfather growing up, uh, gathering spuds. Uh, I used to always gather spuds with him. I used to always go to the bog for the turf with him. Uh, and I used to always work around the farm with him because my dad might have been off working and stuff like that. So, um, like, he passed away in around uh, 1999. And, like, you know, I was, I was 19, 20 at that stage, 21. And, you know, that, that, that cut me deep at the time. Mm. But uh, so, like, I think I learned a lot from him in terms of work ethic and, you know, doing things right. Uh, and when I had that balance with my with my mom and my dad and that level headedness of my mom, like she always kept us on the straight and narrow, I suppose. Um, and then as I got older, uh, you know, into my sort of twenties and stuff, I suppose, um, and we make it onto it. Like I moved to Australia uh, in my mid twenties and uh, took up a job with KPMG uh, and. My boss there uh, was a guy called Matthew Gray. Uh, and, you know, I went to Australia having never left home before. Like, and some of the stories I tell wow. is like, my, my mom used to do all my laundry. Like, you know, when I went to bed every night, I went down to the room, my mom had the sheets down for my bed. She was that, that, because that's the way she was brought up. So, like, I was spoiled rotten <laughs> in that respect. And I knew nothing going to Australia on my own in 2001 when I was like 24. Before wow. FaceTime, before, you know, yeah. Skype, before mobile phones, like all that kind of stuff. And my mentality was that I wanted to go somewhere where 
if I didn't like it, I couldn't come home for my dinner because I knew there would be a stage where I didn't like it, but I had to force myself to stay there. And that all happened. But there was one guy there who was my boss in KPMG, and I still remember the day he picked me up at the airport. Um, and he was a massive influence on my probably professional career. I learned so much from him because I was pretty green, you know, going from a small country town where, all right, I, I was a chartered accountant because I'd sort of, you know, worked my way up and, and, and been qualified in, in my career. But I went to Australia very green behind the ears. And uh, this guy took me under his wing. And he's one of my best mates today, even. You know, he even got gone to the trouble of bringing his wife and his whole family to my wedding back sort of nine or 10 years ago at, at significant expense in Ireland. So that's yeah. the kind of guy that he was. But he taught me so much. What I learned in them first couple of years when I was in Australia, I just cannot, like, that was just invaluable. So he's, he is today and still is an influencer for me, even though he's on the other side of the world, which is kind of interesting. What was your grandfather's name? Robert Harper. Well, shout out to Robert. Um, you referenced KPMG there. You spent yes. almost 13 years there, yes. finishing up reading here as a director in the audit division. What skills did you sharpen from your time there or that you've managed to carry with you to today? Perhaps some management skills or yeah, I don't know, like what the, comes to mind? Uh, like there's loads, right? So if I could even take you back a little bit before that. So one of my mm. interesting things, like I'm a chartered accountant, thankfully, right? But I never went to college. So, uh, you know, uh, I was trying to follow them in my brother's footsteps uh, where, you know, go to college, get your degree and stuff. And it just didn't work out for me. When I was 17, the appetite wasn't there. So I actually left my BTEC in OMA and I started doing construction work, concrete and tie and mm -hmm. steel and stuff. I did that with my brothers and I was only 17. I was getting well enough paid for it. So I kind of made the decision that I didn't want to do this for the rest of my life. And I loved computers at the time. And it says, get me a job in computers. So back in 1994, when I was 17, I went from like 250 pounds a week to 30 pounds a week on a, what they called a YTP. So youth training program, the equivalent of FOSS in the South. Mm. And uh, I remember the guy sort of saying, listen, come up and what do you want? What kind of job do you want? I says, I want a job with computers. So he has an interview for me. So I go up on a Thursday or I think it was a Thursday. I says, where's the interview for? He says, I'm not telling you. He says, come up. So I go up. He says, I've got you an interview in an accountancy office. And I, I was for leaving straight away. I said, no, I don't want to be an accountant. No way do I want to be an accountant. He says, good career. Go and do the interview. So I went into the guy's uh, office. I'll give him a shout out. His name's Jim Turbot, a great practice in Oma in Tyrone. And, uh, and Jim interviewed me. And I think it's fair to say that I would tell Jim this. Now, I laid my backside off in that interview because I didn't want the job. And Jim offered me the job that evening on a phone call and I was just starting Monday. So I went into an accountancy office on a Monday in September, 1994. Didn't know a debit from a credit, didn't know anything. Started off doing filing of letters. But what that progressed, Jim pushed me and he said, listen, I want you to do exams. So I had a thumb lifts to Dungannon on a Tuesday night to try and do my IATA exams. And we had, every exam I sat, I thought I failed. Right? I'm not a confident exam person. I love mm. these guys now that I interview in jobs now where they're saying, yeah, I did the exam, went well. It was brilliant. So I went to Dungannon on Tuesday night, having to work half day, thumb a lift to Dungannon, leave there at half night, maybe thumb a lift home on a Tuesday night. And you know, I did that and I got my, what they call the technician accounting exams after two years, which I don't know how I got them, but I got them. And then Jim says, I want you to, be, I want you to go on and do a chartered accountancy exams which meant I had to go to Belfast on Friday nights from six o'clock to nine o'clock for lectures and all day Saturday. So again, 
Thurman lives to Belfast on Fridays, trying to find somewhere to stay. And this is before, you know, mobile phones, really, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, so I did that. I never missed a lecture. I went to all my lectures, even at the weekends. And by hook or by crook, I passed my exams first time around. I still reckon there's some guy in Dublin with a membership number slightly different to mine with a transposed figure that can't understand how you failed his exams. And maybe they got it mixed up, but I passed <laughs> my exams. So I was 23 when I was a qualified accountant and Jim wanted me to stay in Oma to be a partner in his firm. And I had just this thing where I want to go and do something. So I was doing interviews and I got the job with KPMG, who again flew me out to Australia and I went with the mentality of, listen, Ronan, stay for two weeks, two months, or 20 years. They give me a two-year contract. I said, just stay as long as you like it. And I suppose to your question, you know, what did I learn in KPMG? Like, I can't even probably put that into words from, and, and Matthew Gray was a big part of that. The, the discipline and the investment in people, because people is their engine. So from the minute you get in, um, you know, Put it like this, if I hadn't gone to KPMG, I wouldn't be able to do this interview. I'd just be too nervous. I remember, and I'm quite happy to say this, I remember where Matthew was forcing me to do sort of what they call lunch and learns, where I had to stand up in front of the division at lunch and you know teach them about something about accountancy or international accounting standards. Mm. I couldn't do it at the start. I went to a doctor to get prescriptions to make me sort of self-calm down because I couldn't do it. My hands would have been shaking like this. But he forced me to do it, and I forced myself to do it but they put the arm around you and made you do it. Wow. And, you know, that was one of the biggest skills that I got out of it to be able to stand up in front of people and present myself. And as it turns out, I've done a lot of that since, you know, my, since I've even left KPMG as part of my consultancy and stuff, which has been fantastic. So I think that was a big skill that I got in KPMG. Obviously the people management in terms of managing people, getting the best out of people, dealing with people when they're maybe not performing to the best of their ability. And, uh, you know, those sort of soft skills were invaluable to me about making an impact and, 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 and all that. And then, of course, you know, with the likes of KPMG, you're getting the exposure to the massive uh, SME and even larger and sometimes smaller clients, and you can see how the engine works. And that fascinated me. To, to be able to be, you know, working with these household names and seeing how they made money. It's one of the questions I always used to ask my clients on my first day, show me how you make money. And I thought it was like, and that was a great journey to be on in my time in KPMG. Uh, as you said, I, 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 I sort of, I spent four years in Brisbane and Australia with KPMG. And then I moved back to Dublin and I spent sort of nine and a bit years there and kind of worked my way up from manager up to director. I was a senior director for about uh, sort of nine, maybe six or seven years in there, mm. um, around that time, yeah. After that, you left to be the CEO of FinCom Technology yep. Solutions. Um, what was that change like, going from a director <laughs> to the CEO? That was my own company that I'd set up, right? So basically, um, I'm from the Northwest. My wife mm. is from the Northwest. I'd been in Dublin. Um, I was getting a bit tired of it, if I'm honest. The you know because I spent a lot of time at weekends traveling home. Um, of course. And I kind of realized, you know, when I got married and the first kid came along, that listen, this is where I want to be in the Northwest. I also wanted to be my own boss, really. And I was I remember having uh, I was 36 at the time, and my mentality was 
like I was in this safe job, you know, with, you know, career prospects, again, beyond director level. And I was kind of thinking, well, that's going to be me there forever. And I was, I remember thinking, Ronan, you're 36. I would rather be 40 and have tried it and failed than maybe 40 and still in that career job where I'm somewhat trapped. So mm-hmm. I was running out of time to either make or break. And I suppose through my work with some of the clients, I identified what I thought was an opportunity around compliance. Um, and I took the idea to Enterprise Ireland. I was looking for the exit, I suppose. I took the idea to Enterprise Ireland. They ran the Competitive Start Fund, which I'm sure your, your listeners would be aware of. And I was su- successful in the com- Competitive Start Fund. And basically that gave me 50,000 euro for a 10% equity stake in a company, which is Fincom. And the way I looked at that was saying, Ronan, this is going to put bread on the table for 12 months in the Northwest. Go and try this. If it doesn't work, you know, at least you've tried it. You can say that you've tried it. So that, that's, that was Fincom Technology Solutions. It was really, you know, a three-man band at the start, which soon became like a one-man band where I was doing a lot of financial consultancy for a lot of different businesses. And I suppose KPMG were good to me in that sense because, you know, through my networks there, they were able to give, give me a lot of work and refer me a lot of work nice. where I was doing financial consultancy projects. But it really went from, you know, having all this support structure to being on my own. You did it though. You, know, you did it. I did it. And yeah, I did it. And it worked well. Yep. One of the things that I noticed was Barry Harper yes. from Envolve came in and yeah. he's your brother. He's my brother. Yeah. It yeah. would make sense with the second name. I had interviewed him before and through that, I noticed that there was some involvement between Barry coming into Fincom. Yes. Um, and then that must have been where you pivoted to become the CEO of Pivotal. Yes. So Barry had the, uh, Barry was also an influencer in my life, but Barry had the years of experience in his business. Mm. And that was around the software development space. And my idea for Fincom was in that compliance software development space. So like I leveraged from Barry uh, and we had, we, had a, we had agreement, obviously two brothers where we would try and grow this business. But like, to be honest to you and to be honest, be honest with your listeners, when I'd left KPMG, when I'd made the jump in September 2013 and said, this is what I'm going to do, the KPMG basically said, listen, would you, that's fine, but would you do this short-term project for us as on a consulting basis? And I was kind of going, do you know what? There's a startup business where there's no guarantee of income, but I've got kind of three months of consultancy work here now where I can sort of boost the cash balances to put more bread on the table, maybe give me a bit more but more than a year to grow my other business. And mm. if I'm absolutely honest, like the consulting took over and it meant that I was no longer spending five days a week on the initial idea of income. It wasn't, you know, this has to work because it has to put bread and butter on the table. Like there was just lots of consulting contracts that were coming my way that just, you know, rolled and rolled and, and just kept me so busy, but got me great exposure through yeah. the likes of, you know, IBRC liquidation, I was involved in that and a lot of other different clients where I was going in as the acting F finance director to help fix finance departments, you know, maybe acquire companies, sell companies, reorganization, reorganize companies. And I'd been doing that for seven years, uh, you know, and I enjoyed it. I was my own boss. And it just so happened in terms of the transition to the CEO of Pivotal, where I am now, 
one of those clients was Pivotal, where it was COVID times and it was sort of July last year. Like every business, it, it, it was impacted by COVID. So I was introduced to the owner uh, with the same kind of uh, engagement letter, if you like to say, we need someone in that can help, you know, rebalance this business in the light of COVID. And, uh, you know, came in, uh, did a few months consultancy from that. But obviously, in terms of what the board and that scene from Pivotal's perspective, that kind of led to me being appointed as CEO from January. So I've gone to being my own boss again to be sort of, I know I'm CEO, but I'm back to being a full-time employee from January. Well, there was a recent article that came out that uh, said that you'll be creating 100 jobs yes. in the next year. That's so right. congrats. Uh, I, I referenced this article from the Harvard Business Review regularly on this podcast, and it's that the cost of a bad hire is five times the annual salary from missed opportunities, not just the wage. Uh, so when it comes to hiring, do you have a specific process or is it just good feel? Do you know what? Uh, my process for hiring is, and, and my mantra, I suppose, is that uh, we have to hire exceptional people. Like, you know, my vision for Pivotal is that we are an exceptional entity. And mm. it's particularly with my KPMG background, I see the value in hiring exceptional people. And, and like, you know, I've seen, I've seen the good people come and I've seen the bad people go. So, and, and I, I would echo your point in terms of the cost of, of getting the wrong person. And like, we've all made those mistakes. No one's perfect at that. So my, uh, my vision is that, and, and, you know, we're going through a significant recruitment phase now, and some of those are significantly senior appointments. So I get the best people around me that are subject matter experts in that field to help guide me with that. But ultimately we hire exceptional people. And that and, and, and we don't we don't accept anybody that doesn't meet that bar. I like it. You continue to expand as well as hiring these people. One of the things is I've noticed you've had new branches, but also you launched pivotal pay. Correct. Two part question. One for our listeners, can you explain what that is? And then two, like I guess the best way to ask the second part is like, what's your go to market strategy to get that off the ground? Yeah. So uh I suppose if you think of Pivotal, um, and, and Pivotal used to be called RMS Group Services. So before mm. my time, they'd done a rebrand to Pivotal, which was just around March 2020, which was just at COVID. So one of the challenges we have now is that brand awareness, I suppose, and, and, and we're dealing with that. But Pivotal traditionally, right, uh, would have been known as what they call a cash management company. And the vision and the strategy here is not to be pigeonholed as a cash management company, but to be a transactional management company. And that is achieved through the introduction of Pivotal Pay, which is a merchant acquiring um, platform. So mm. essentially for some of your listeners, when they go to the shop and they tap their card or their watch at the little terminal or they do it online, that's what we provide. So we can provide that. And there's many, and there's competitors out there that would do that already, obviously. So our vision is in terms of that transactional management is to be the one-stop shop for all of our customers. So um, if I could use the example, Ray, and, um, and, and I use this with a, with a lot of my customers and some of the, even uh, my staff, if you ran uh, 10 pharmacies around, say, say Ireland, uh, that, that 10 years ago, you might've been saying, let's just, let's just say a hundred grand uh, a week, right? Mm -hmm. So there would be a cost for you. And that might've been all cash 10 years ago, that hundred grand a week. So we would, 
our, part of our traditional model is to uh, manage that cash process for you so that you're not taking it to the bank because there's risk with that and there's disruption with that and there's increased cost for that. So we will supply you with cash. We will collect you your, your cash. We will process your cash and we will bank your cash for you. All in what you can imagine is a very secure, uh, a secure process by our regulation. Now, in, in, in today's environment, you could have still those 10 pharmacy stores, but and your takings might still be 100 grand a week. But the reality is that 50 grand of that might be cash now, right? And 50 grand is going to be digital. It's going to be the tapping by the watch and the card yeah. and stuff. So when I was introduced in in uh, January, you know, it, it, it wouldn't, it didn't take a, a genius to work out. You know, we're not stupid, right? Uh, Cash isn't going to go away, and we have lots of research and data to suggest that, despite some of the lobby groups in terms of what they're saying. But we're not ostriches with our heads in the sand either. The, the cash market will decline, but when you look at the market that we're after, we've got such a small percentage at the moment that we're going to get a bigger piece of that pie, and that's the strategy. Okay, But the reality is that we, we want to be your transactional management partner. We want to provide your cash services, we want to provide your uh, ATM services, but we also want to provide your digital services because we realize that our income from cash processing, whether it's 10 years, 20 years, or 50 years, will naturally decline, but that your income will hopefully grow and we will grow the digital element of it at the same time. So it's a bit of, you know, you know the, the cash income may come down, but the digital fintech element will grow. Mm -hmm. But the most important thing for us is the quality of service and that we have you as our partner and our customer and that we are managing all your transactional management needs, whether it's cash or whether it's digital. And that's what Pivotal Pay is. Now we've launched that in, in May of this year. So it's, it's going really, really well. We have fee paying customers. We can offer all the services that our competitors do. But what makes us different, I suppose, is that our platform is very simple, as safe and secure as you would, would imagine. Our pricing is very simple, but we can offer the whole package, whether it's cash, ATM, or digital. Mm -hmm. We're just not a digital provider. And we're also not a reseller. We own our own intellectual property with that. Yeah. So, um, you know, you'll see, you know, from some of our competitors, and like some of your listeners will be aware of this already, you know, you can look at all these advertisements about X percent and it looks really attractive, but there's a bit of devil in the detail, you know, when you look at the hidden charges and stuff, as you might imagine, we don't do that. We have a very simple platform. You know exactly in your pharmacy shop, uh, if you take in a hundred quid on a card, what it's going to cost you. And there's no hidden charges. You're not worrying about if it's a debit card or a credit card or a corporate card, such as American Express. You're not worried about uh, minimum volumes, you're not worried about sort of hidden fees. And, you know, our feedback in the sort of May, June, July, in the three or four months since we've been operational has echoed that vision that we have. So now with the article that you've just seen in terms of the funding that we've received, we're, we're accelerating that at some pace now. And, and that's where a lot of these jobs are going to come from. Plus, as you said, our branches in the UK. You should check out... Uh his name ollie ollie kavanagh from strike the right. founder of strike in dublin he's definitely worth connecting with potentially just as a layer on to what you're doing he's um this is his ninth startup and he's either been acquired or exited exited successfully from a from a majority of the the previous eight intelligent guy as well um 
I had him on the podcast. It's coming out soon. Um, two more questions for you, Ronan. It would be the second last question is, is there a commonly held belief or myth about your t- job slash title or field industry that you disagree with? Yeah, well, I, I, I suppose the, the one that I think is easy for people to jump on in the bandwagon is the demise of cash. Okay. So there's a lot of lobby groups out there. There's a lot of noise out there that cash is gone. Right. And, you know, as you'll see in that article that I had with that funding is people have to understand that cash continues to be, and will be a very important part of our business, but a very important part of our customers businesses. Mm. And I would encourage those people, who are skeptical to say, oh, cash will be gone in the short term. I would, I would be, I would encourage them to do some research on that because we have done that research. And I'll give you, I'll give you a couple of interesting ones. You know, if you look at the European Central Bank, they, and if you look on their website, actually, so this is the European Central Bank, they have brought out a very interesting article of why Europe needs cash. You know, so they have brought out their justification and their vision of why the European Central Bank is con- going to continue to support cash into the future, you know, mm. and you know, it's give it gives a really balanced view about those different types of groups that you know whether they're lobby groups and what they're really saying is that, you know, it's not lobby groups that will get the re- that will remove cash from this cashless society. It's going to be the will of the people. And when you look at some of the statistics from that, they're basically saying. From a survey that the European Central Bank did, 80% of those people, and it's like 65,000 people, 80% of them use cash as their mode of transactions. Wow. And in terms of all of the transactional value in, that, in those 65,000 people, half of it, half of the value was cash. So you know, they're basically saying that from their strategy and perspective, it's not going anywhere. Okay, and then the other interesting fact that you should look at, and again, this is not me saying it, and I'm not a lobby group. I'm, it's the ECB, yeah. It's ECB, the Bank of England, right? If you look on their website, you'll see the, the value of cash notes in circulation. And if you look at the history of that, so, you know, if you go back to 2017, there was maybe 67 billion of Bank of England notes in circulation. So that's maybe 2017. 2018 is probably 68. 2019 was 69. 2020, just before the pandemic, there was 70 billion of notes in circulation. A year later, Rian, there is 80 billion of cash. So it's actually taken a massive jump in terms of the cash is out there. So, like, you know, I think that cash is is still a very valuable currency. There's still a lot of people out there that rely on cash. Yeah. You know, will it decline? Yeah. Is it going to be at the scale of what everybody thinks? I don't think so, right? So, um, you know, if you look at the UK market alone, that market in our industry is an eighty or an eight, uh, 800 billion market. Ireland's probably around 80 to 100 billion market. There only are a small handful of players doing what we do in that market. Mm. And, that's, and we've got a very small market share. So we see that opportunity, I suppose, with, you know, with, with that, 
strategic footprint because we were, were predominantly based in Ireland and we have a couple of branches in the UK. Now with these new branches, we have a national coverage so we can, we can cater for the large multinational contracts uh, with these new cash centers. And when you add on the pivotal pay aspect of it, it's the bundled offering where we can sort of add significant value to your customers by offering them the all-inclusive package. It's a bit like, do you want your phone with one provider, your TV with one provider, your broadband with another provider, or is it easier to have them all? And is it more efficient to have them all and more cost-effective to have them all when you have one person that you're dealing with for all of that? I wish, I wish that could be yeah. the case when it comes to TV, mobile, and internet. Yeah. Um, final question for you is, I'm referencing secondary school here. If you had the, the final decision-making power to introduce a new subject to the curriculum that's not currently on it that would be mandatory for everyone to take what would it be and why oh um what would i put in um i think i think for me and like it's, it's been a while since i've been in the secondary school but some of the work that i've been doing um in my time in fincom has been in the educational space you know, in terms of my learning back then, it really has to be on, you know, the, the being prepared for business element of it. Yeah, you can have business studies and you can have maths and stuff like that there, but really it's around, you know, I wish they would bring in a little bit more about, you know, even that entrepreneurial aspect of running your own business, you know, the challenges that you will face the decisions that you will have to overcome and how you would do that mm. because you know and, and i've looked at some of your previous people on the podcast and you know there are some really intelligent motivated 16 17 21 year olds that are there. scares you, me you, how, you, how good they're you don't have to be 35 with seven years experience to be an entrepreneur and start mm. up your own business so i just think you know this generation of people that are coming through you know they're much more tech savvy than i am right i have an eight-year-old son that would wipe the floor with me on some of the digital aspects of what goes on in our house so i think you know you know trying to maybe convert that into that business mindset i, I would like something dedicated on that but not just sort of saying this is how you be an entrepreneur but really saying these are the challenges that you will face these are the the thing these are it will go wrong but this is how you overcome some of that stuff Mm -hmm. there's a young lad and I say young lad and I'm only 28 but there's a young lad from Kilkenny called Christopher Shum Motus Learning uh, his name just still sticks in my head and there's a couple of others that have spoken to that are not even 20 yet that are just wow yeah there's definitely a ton of people that have spoken on this podcast and there's people on, on, on the other end of the spectrum as well that have got 30 years 40 years of experience that, that have built and exited seven eight things successfully but some of the youth coming up nowadays is phenomenal really cool to see you know but we see that as well some of the people that we're hiring in here like i'm looking at them going you guys are brilliant like they're motivated they're intelligent they're savvy uh they know what they want right uh and i just think it's brilliant to see that caliber of people coming through now um because i know uh when i when i was there and, I, and i'll tell you what else it is it's about like and you you might appreciate this when i did interviews it was about you know what can i do for that company and now what we're seeing, the people are so good. It's totally flipped. It's flipped. like, what can you do for me? So we're like, we're sort of, that's what one of our challenges is to, say, to attract the best talent in here. And it's one of the things that I've kicked off in terms of our employee engagement 
within this organization and how we interact with them and how we reward them and, and how we share information with them is like, what can I do for you to make sure that not only do I get the best talent, but that I retain that best talent. Getting them in the door is one thing on a sales pitch. Retaining them is the key, I think. And you know, you need to have substance beside behind all of that to actually retain the good staff. We could continue this for another hour just off retention alone, but we'll, we'll, we'll leave it there for today. Ronan, I wish you the best of continued success going forward. It's been great to chat to you. The, the second Harper on the podcast, but uh, thanks for being my guest today. And the best looking, don't forget. And <laughs> the best looking. I'll send I don't that think bit to like that, but listen, it's, it's, been a, it's been great, so thanks for having me on. Beautiful morning, you're the sun of my morning bed.